The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we come before you and say thank you for devising a glorious plan to save the world. The world that is fallen and fleeing from you, you acted to come and get, to rescue, to save. And you, you planned and then you executed it and we say thank you. Most of us here, Lord, are currently enjoying the benefits of your action. And for those here who are not yet, I pray you would open eyes and hearts today even and that you would save. You would save more people today, tomorrow, next week, that you would gather in your people from every tongue and tribe and nation that you would save the world as you have planned. Lord, we come to a text this morning that is, even as the music is making us think of, that is a, a text most commonly associated with Christmas. But it is about a glorious thing that you have done that we should think about all year round. And so this morning, as we pull this text up, put it in front of us, as we open our Bibles and look, would you work? Work in, in several ways, Lord, to give me clarity of speech, to, to enable me to say what is true and to say it clearly, to enable us to hear and to listen closely. Work on that level, please. Work to clear away sin that would be any barrier, in addition to, to distractions that are, you know, kind of material distractions. Clear away sin barriers and distractions that would stand between us, that would be kind of darkening shrouds on our hearts to keep us from seeing glory. If you would lead us in confession of particular things now, do that, please. Lord, I pray also that you would enable us to to, with, with quickened hearts, see glory. Not just to understand facts, understand truths in, in a story that is extremely familiar to us. But I pray, Lord, that you would, you would deepen our understanding and you would cause us to see glory. And on top of that, Lord, I, the, the goal that I, that I pray you would cause us to walk out of here with is, is joy. Oh God, give your people joy in you. Help us to see glory in what you have done to save and to be a people who walk in great joy because of that. Make it to be for our joy, please, this morning. There is marvel, things to marvel at here, and I pray help us to marvel. Help me to express it clearly and us to hear it without sin in the way, without earthly blinders. Cause us to marvel, to worship, and to walk out rejoicing. Lord, I think that one of the things that you, I, I, I think it is the, the greatest characteristic of, of a Christian who gets it, is that we walk in joy. And I pray you would work that into us and you would cause us to be a people who, 
who, who get it, who really understand what you have done, are amazed by it, marvel at it, and walk, skip and leap even for joy. John the Baptist in the womb got it by the Spirit, and his mother Elizabeth got it, and Mary gets part of it. She understands more as the story goes on, and, and Zechariah sees, and Lord, would you make us a people who understand and who marvel and rejoice. Thank you. Do a work now, Lord, and, and speak in your word. Spirit of God, have your way in this room, please. Conquer our hearts for joy. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So we turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 2 and the birth of Jesus, which we've been anticipating for quite some time now, ever since Luke first told us about it, when he, visited, when he tells how the angel visited Mary back in chapter 1, forecast to her that she was going to have a baby. Mary had not known a man, so it would be impossible for her to bear a child, yet the angel said, you're going to have one nonetheless. I'm going to put a baby in you. You will bring him into this world Jesus is what you're to name him. He will be a son, a son legally a son of, of her betrothed, her, her engaged husband, who is of the tribe of David. Be a son of Joseph, but a son of God. He's been coming for quite a while, and now we finally come to him. But before the birth of Jesus, we walked through the birth of John the Baptist, who was from another improbable pregnancy, Elizabeth, who was past childbearing years, had been unable to have children up to this point. She also is to have a child, but this one is going to be a prophet going before the Lord to prepare the people for him. As we saw last week, to prepare the people by pointing out sin and by pointing out how it is that God would save in the forgiveness of sin. Saw that in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John was going to come and do that in order to prepare the way. He would make them aware. He would be making them aware how God would act to forgive sin, to shine light into the world, to overcome death. Great change is coming in Jesus. And now, finally, the birth of Jesus comes. It begins. So I'm going to read this well-known text. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. But I'll pass back through to make a couple of the details, particularly from verses 1 to 7, maybe a little more clear to us, and then focus on 8 and following. I'm going to draw two observations from the passage towards this main point. Here's my main point this morning. Expresses an exhortation to us. Praise be to God. He has acted to save us into joy. Praise be to God. He has acted to save us into joy. And as I was praying, kind of the end of that, to save us into joy, that's, that's kind of the, the burden for this morning, kind of the focus, to save us into joy. There's a, there's a lot about joy in this passage there's a lot about joy so far in this book, in fact, but in this passage in particular. And so as I'm walking through what God has done, I'm going to have kind of two parts to this, what God has done and how we're supposed to respond to it. 
As I'm walking through what God has done, keep your eye on the response of joy. That's where we're be moving towards, I hope, this morning. But let me read the passage first. It's from Luke chapter 2, beginning verse 1, down through verse 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Luke chapter 2. Verses 1 to 7 give us the historical context and then give us the birth of Jesus, explaining how it was that Mary and Joseph, who live in Nazareth, ended up giving birth in Bethlehem, 90 miles away to the south. On the surface, that's highly unusual. Even today, people don't give birth. People usually give birth pretty close to their homes. This is four days' journey away. How is it that she ended up there? The text explains. At some point in time, Caesar decided that he wanted to conduct another tax census in the empire, and these things would, would happen from time to time, and they'd go by region by region by region, we don't know all the details about this one, don't know how it exactly was that Quirinius was involved. Luke does give us a clue that he knows more than we do by pointing out this was the first registration, verse 2. There's, there's another one that was well known. This isn't that one. This is one before that. So He knows more than we do, but at some point in time, Caesar decided he needed to have a census to figure out who lives where, how to tax him, signed a paper, 
And so it was that by the providence of God, the prophecy of Micah 5 is fulfilled. Joseph is of the house of David, and so he has to travel back to his ancestral home. That's how a census would have happened in Jewish areas. He travels back, takes his betrothed, engaged fiance Mary with him. She's with child well along in, in the process. And in fact, while she's there, it says she gave birth. It doesn't say on the first night they arrived in town. There are a few details here that we perhaps need to get different in our minds from the, the, the child storybook version. It just says while they were there. We don't have the sense of urgency of them, of her having labor contractions and them run around trying, trying to find some place for her to be. While they were there, she gave birth in some sort of a stable. But the word that's translated in there, we need to kind of recalibrate our thinking of stable and in. The word that's translated in elsewhere, Luke uses that word to describe the upper room where the Last Supper was had. And then also when he tells the story of the good Samaritan who took the man beaten by the side of the road to an inn, a, a business, he uses a different word. So probably what Luke means here is some large room or some large shelter in the family property somewhere. They didn't go to a hotel and find there were no hotel rooms available. There's a census happening. Everybody's gathered back. Most likely what happened is that Joseph is a little late and all the other relatives got all the room in the house. They got all the floor space in the overflow room taken. And so he has to go outside and sleep in the outside shelter where the animals would be. They might not even have been alone. Also keep in mind, this is a pilgrimage-making society. They all, every man in the nation is supposed to travel to Jerusalem several times every year. They are accustomed to sleeping in unusual, packed, crowded situations. All this to say, it has less of a feel of rejection, of get away. We don't want your kind here. I have this picture in my mind of a children's storybook of of an angry guy looking out of the door as he shuts it in Joseph's face. Go away. No. There's no room on the floor. Look, I mean, you, get, you guys, you know, join the other relatives in the stable. It's not about rejection, but it is very much about simplicity. Ordinary, lowly, humble Simplicity. This is the king, the king, a son of David, the firstborn. The language laced in there. We, we, obviously, we know that this is her firstborn, but the language is placed in there to emphasize heir. This is the firstborn son of David, and he's in a, a trough. That's pretty humble. That's where he's born, and that's where he's laid. Very simple. Born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of the prophecy. Sent there by Caesar according to the whims of a world power. Exactly like God said it would be. Verses 8 to 14 then. I have a, a few more details. An angel appears. Comes to talk to the shepherds. 
And this is another simple note, another very common note, because shepherds are ordinary guys in the ancient world. They are the common man. They're out, they're outside, they're doing dirty work, they're doing hard work, simple work, they're not highly educated, they're not powerful, and an angel comes to them to announce to them that Jesus has been born. Scares them out of their wits, of course. The glory of the Lord shines all about them. An angel at the center, and he gives them a message. That's what we're going to turn to now, the message that the angel gives to the shepherds. I'm going to talk about what it is that he says, what it is that he says God has done, and then talk about what our response to that should be. So those two points are, I'm going to proceed now. The angel gives them a message. This is what God has done. And then how we respond to that. So here's my first point. God has provided a Savior. The long-promised Christ the Lord. God has provided a Savior. The long-promised Christ the Lord. Now, throughout the passage, there are a lot of people doing a lot of different things, but the focus is on what God has done. The key verse here, verse 11. Verse 11 says, For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We're going to have to unpack that verse. That's the main verse. But if you notice, it begins with the word for, which tells us that we're in the middle of something else. We need to step back one more verse to verse 10. The angel begins to speak. It says, good news. Good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. That, that's how he, he opens up. There is good news. Something has happened here. And what is it exactly? It doesn't say just quite yet, but it's good news, and it is of a great joy. Well, sure, there's the first reason. As I said, I'm, I'm, I'm working through this passage here, and I want you to be kind of mentally working through this passage I'm gonna, I realize I'm, I'm covering a passage that the great danger here this morning is it's like I'm describing to you your own living room. You know full well what your living room looks like. At least as well as I do. Probably better. And so I'm describing to you something that, that is very easy. There's, there's a, a great possibility that you would this morning say, yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. I mean, I can recite this. I've Heard Charlie Brown recited a hundred times. I know, I know, I know, I know. That's oh. So as I'm walking through the details here, what I'm going to plead with you to do is keep the, the joy thing in mind. This is good news. There's you know the, the foreshadowing here is weak. You know what the good news is, but it's good news for joy. Keep a hold of that. This is good news for great joy. That should get our attention because it should be that as soon as I say or you read joy, great joy, that should, that should grab you because that's what you're after. I've said this before, it is what we chase in life. We want joy. By God's design, we are creatures that seek it constantly. 
We run after joy. Sometimes we call it happiness, and sometimes we call it fun, and sometimes we call it delight or pleasure. But if you boil it all down, everything that we do or everything we avoid, everything that we long for and dream about or fear is in some way related to the fact that I want joy. I want to be satisfied. I want to be at peace, pleased, rejoicing, happy, singing inside here. I chase after it relentlessly, and so do you. We love it when we get it, and we fear it when we lose it. And we always lose it. It's like sand running through our fingers because this world is very often joyless. No sooner do we think we've, we've got something and it, it's cut off beneath us. No sooner do we, do we see a path, that's how I could find some delight and then it's blocked. We've got to find another way around it. Constantly. And as soon as you find yourself, you're situated with, with all of the health and all of the wealth and all the friends and the kids are secure and they've got through their universities and they're married and the grandkids are on the way, then you just, like Job, you feared this would happen. The other shoe drops and some piece of the, of the, perfect, the perfect castle fails. We're after joy, and we, we find it, but it runs through our fingers, and it's gone. And this is good news of a great joy, a joy given from God that he means to not cause us to suspend reality, but to come into the midst of reality, hang out right, right in the middle of this joyless world, and be a joy that doesn't run through our fingers, but sits in the hand and is held onto, can be walked in and experienced consistently, constantly, increasingly, everlastingly, fulfillingly, joy. This is good news because it is about the thing you long for and were made for. Joy. So this should grab our attention when the angel says good news, not just good news, something interesting happened, but good news, joy. And it is a joy that is for all the people. He's talking to some little group of people here, who knows, five, ten shepherds sitting around maybe. There is good news of great joy that is not only for you guys, it is for all the people. Surely, the, I mean he uses the word the, surely he means, and they would think, the people of Israel, the people but we know the rest of the story and that soon that gets expanded much more broadly than just the people of Israel. It includes Gentiles too. The people means the nations. Everybody. Here is good news of great joy for the world. And now we're ready for verse 11. We should be poised here. There's good news that is about great joy that is for me and for everybody to hear, what is it? For unto you is born this day. Which is interesting. Unto you. Shouldn't it be Mary? Or maybe Mary and Joseph? 
maybe the house of David. He says, unto you, plural, y'all, unto you all, Mary has given birth. She has a baby. She's giving birth to a baby for you. Unto you is born this day. She's a carrier of a baby that's yours. Born in the city of David in Bethlehem. The prophecies, you, you know them. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, you know the prophecy of, of Micah, how in little Bethlehem a great king would be born. You see the language here, a Savior who is Christ, Messiah. This is the son of David, emphasized repeatedly throughout this passage as Joseph went there because he was the house of the house and lineage of David, born in the city of David. We've seen it emphasized repeatedly before. When the angel came to announce to Mary, this is going to be the king, the son of David. He is a savior. A word very often used of God, a word used of kings who are saviors of their people. Who is Christ, the great king. So, again, as part of joy, think Savior and King, the King we need. What, is that, what does that look like? What does it mean? Mary has sung of it, and Zechariah has sung of it already. We saw it traced out as we sometime back walked through Judges and Samuel. We saw this is what, what we need as a ruler, and then this is the one who has come, a king who would be a savior from all of our enemies, who would cast down and crush every enemy who it rises up against his people, who destroys all evil, who removes all wickedness, who chases away all pain and all loss and all sin and all suffering, who himself reigns on a throne at whose foundation is righteousness and justice, who covers everything that he does with mercy, repeatedly struck that note throughout all of chapter 1, in mercy God acts, in mercy, and covers it with steadfast love and mercy and grace. This is the king we want and the king we need, and the good news that is of great joy for the world is that that king has been born right where God said he would be, in Bethlehem. You'll find him laid in a manger, Humble. In little Bethlehem, humble. Which tells us something about the king's heart. He is indeed a ruler of cosmic proportions and stoops to be born, to be born as a man, to be born not even as a ruling man, but as a humble man, as a servant. And you can trace the rest of that out. And who will submit himself even to death, even death on a cross? We see the beginning of that even right here. He's born in simple humility. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you will find him. Wait, 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 wait. We, we run off that phrase. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then move on. And you will find him wrapped up in the... The Lord? What does that mean? 
everywhere up to this point, Lord, I mean, you could walk through Luke chapter 1 up to this point, Lord has been clearly God. When the angel comes and speaks to Zechariah, he has a message from the Lord, and the prophet will be great before the Lord, and will go before the Lord to prepare his way. And, and Mary receives a message from the Lord and says, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me as you say. And the fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord, and her soul magnifies the Lord. This is again and again and again and again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, says Zechariah. Just like 6,000 times in the Greek Old Testament, this word Lord is about God, plain as day, God. And here is one who will be the Savior, Christ, the Lord. What? What's that mean? Well, in the context, the answer is, hang tight, we'll get to that. Because it doesn't answer it. Just moves on, but it leaves something hanging there that in the next point I'm going to talk about pondering. It leaves something hanging there that you should say, I need to think about that. One should receive this and think about it. The answer, of course, we understand. We've read the rest of the Bible. We understand what that means is that when God acted to send the king we need, the king we need is God. God the Father has sent God the Son to the earth to reign over the people of God. That's the answer. The king we need, the one that we need to rule over us is God himself. And he has acted to step into the world in this tremendously humble way. A baby laid in a manger, born in Bethlehem. Heaven knows this, which is why heaven breaks out in rejoicing. Verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest. Heaven, the highest, is full of praise over this. Glory to God in the highest. And then on earth, peace. Placed on the table in front of all of us. This is good news for everybody. It's not just the praise in heaven, but the offer, the possibility, the created possibility of peace on earth. But looking closely, it is not an automatic peace. It is not peace to everyone. Just because there is complexity in the second half of verse 14 that I'm going to talk about in a bit. A complexity that I think as we ponder it, will produce even deeper joy. But right on the surface here at first, what we need to recognize is that there is peace, but it is not universal and automatic. There is peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased, which brings up in our minds, should bring up in our minds, the possibility of God not being pleased. How is it that God makes for peace? 
How is it that God removes off of people wrath, wrath that stands between him and his creation? How is it that he removes that wrath to join them and him back together again in peace? How does he do that? We saw it last week, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. At the heart of this good news sent to all of us for all of our consideration that would be for great joy is that you can be at peace with God by the forgiveness of your sins. Not just by wanting to be at peace with God. Not just by trying to be a peaceful person. But in the forgiveness of sins. How does that happen? Again, it's not all spelled out here. The rest of the Bible is very clear, though. How that happens is that God sent this son not just to be born, but to die. Sent him to come to live, live perfectly and righteously as God, man, on earth, and then to die on a cross to take on himself the wrath that would be on you. To stand in your place to remove off of you all guilt and all condemnation that you might have peace with God and then being at peace with God to have peace with others. The offer here, the thing for which God is praised, is that he has acted to send a Savior, Christ the Lord, and how this Christ saves from all of our enemies How he delivers his people is by making peace with God, crushing their greatest, our greatest enemy, sin. That's offered to all people. Trust him. Trust him alone. I I look out here. I, I know most. I know most of us here. I don't know everybody here, but I know most of us here. And I I know that as I'm talking to you. You, you understand this, you hear it. Perhaps some of you, I need to, to press a, a note of urgency here. God offers peace for a time. But there is a time when, when the offer ends. It clearly ends at the point that, that you die. You don't know when that is. But it also ends at some other hard-to-define point when, when right now perhaps you're hearing me talk about this and maybe, maybe for the first time you're, you're thinking about it and you're wondering peace and joy and forgiveness. I don't quite get all of that, but I'm, I'm hearing it and I'm thinking about it. And at some undefined future point, you're going to stop thinking about it and move on. And we have no guarantee that God will ever speak to you about it again. If it's catching in you right now, if you're thinking about it right now, fortunate are you. God's talking. God is speaking to you and making known to you right now in this very moment, perhaps for the first time or maybe again in in a different way, he's gripping you and he's saying to you something like, we are not at peace. 
in grace and in mercy. I'm telling you that right now. Realize, if he didn't tell you, you still wouldn't be at peace. You'd just be doomed. But in grace and in mercy, he's saying, we have a problem here. Stepping forward and saying, there is not... There is conflict, not peace. And I have provided a Savior, Christ the Lord, that there would be peace. Listen. Come. And I plead with you, do not say, let me get back to you on that. And put the phone down and walk away. I don't know how long you have in your earthly life, or how long it is that God will talk. He holds out his hands to you and shows you the scars in his wrists and speaks to you the truth of the cross and the cross alone is how you can be saved. He says that very patiently and very graciously and very mercifully, full of love, putting that onto you, but he will not speak that into eternity forever. You will die or he will stop. I don't know when either of those moments is, which is why the Bible says today, right now, is the day of salvation. Hear and repent and believe and step into peace and great joy that is good news for you. Trust Christ to be forgiven. And for the bulk of us here, that I know you are very well aware of what it is that God has done to send a Savior, Christ the Lord. There is still much for you to ponder in this for your joy. That takes me to the second point here. Ponder this good news. And God will make it to be for your joy. So the first point is the good news. God has provided the long-promised Savior, Christ the Lord. And the second one, ponder that. And God will make it to be for your joy. So we see the grace of God here, what it is that God has done. Marvelous good news. In verse 17, the shepherds hear it. They run to town to find the baby and they make known, it says, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. They start talking about it. They say what the angels said. They, they explain who the baby is, what happened with the angels. They start walking around Bethlehem, perhaps other people in the stable. Maybe they're walking around, banging on doors. Who knows? They seem to be a little bit excited and they seem to be telling what it is they've heard and what it is they've seen. Good news, great joy. Savior's been born. He's right down the street, you know, he's right over there. And there are two responses to what they say. Verse 18, and all who heard it, it says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Some translations say everyone was amazed. Like that kind of got people's attention. They, they heard it and they were like, whoa, what, what? which seems, at first, good, in a way. Until you realize that nothing came of it. 
Nothing. They hear this message and it seems that it grabbed their attention for a moment and then it faded and that basically the town stayed in bed. And then, maybe the next morning or maybe next week, the government officials finally came and they got their act together and the census happened. And then everybody went home and paid exactly zero attention to Jesus for the next 30 years. Nothing. Which is amazing because they heard the announcement and saw the baby and then said, essentially, wow, that's amazing. What's for lunch? Nothing happened. Don't be that person. Don't be those people. Not, not because that's not cool. Because literally, eternity hangs in the balance. The Lord was born right there. And they walked off. I'm saying right here is the good news from heaven announced by angels written down in God's word preserved for centuries about the one and only way that your eternity can change and life, peace, and great joy can come to you. It is right here. Please, do not say, that is really interesting, well-delivered, orderly, and thoughtful. What's for lunch? And miss it. And perish because of it. I plead with you, do not be, do not be them. But instead, the second response, verse 19, but Mary. Contrast word but indicates different response here. But Mary. Mary is, is interesting for us because she clearly does not get it. But she pays attention. And she knows there's something there that she hasn't got yet. It says, verse 19, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went off glorifying God. And she did, she was obedient with what she knew. She named him Jesus, as she'd been told. And she kept listening and she kept paying attention. And maybe where you're sitting right this, here this morning, you don't quite understand how all this works together and you're not quite sure if you buy it. Do not just set the phone down and walk away and think and get back to that later. Ponder it. Put it in your heart and think and listen and talk and ask questions and read and ask God, 
Illumine the scriptures to me. Explain this to me. I need to know. Something's here. Something is in here. And you say it is of peace with you and of great joy. And I need that and I want that. But I don't get it. Speak, please. Answer. Engage. So maybe that's you. And I plead with you, keep pondering. But some of us here know far more than Mary does, does at this point. We understand and you, oh, to, to ponder this. Think what has happened here. You, you know more about this. When it says, peace on earth. Christian, speaking to you now, Christian, think about what has happened here. Something legally has changed for you. That if you will ponder that, what has legally changed, you'll ponder that and think into it. Think of, think of what comes from that and think of where that came from. If you'll ponder that, God will make it for your joy. There's something that should be kind of a legal fact that should become and remain an abiding, experienced, real, lasting joy. Good news for great joy for you. Legally, your standing before God the judge has changed. So think of these passages. Familiar ones, don't let them roll off. Grab them. This is Christ who was crucified for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Isaiah 53. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, righteous and unrighteous, to bring you to God. Legally, you were unrighteous. The righteous one took your sin on him, put his righteousness on you to bring you to God. No longer held out, closed up. 1 Peter 3. Or, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the same passage again, same idea again. Him who knew no sin, sin placed on him, so that we, the righteousness of God placed on us. God did that, changed a legal status. You are now in his eyes righteous, justified, legally. For our sake, he did that. So, peace, thinking where that leads and where it came from, thinking where that leads first. So you have unhindered access to, unhindered communion. You have the perpetual, perpetual smile of God on you. 
When it says there is therefore now no condemnation, what that means on the flip side is that there is therefore now pleasure, acceptance, good, smile, favor, not condemnation, from God on you. All that's included under the verdict of innocent, justified, righteous. You have access to this God who is the ruler of all. You have access to him with a smile, with an acceptance into his presence and a promise of perpetual, continual, everything you need blessing forever. Where that goes to. But think where it comes from. And this is where the the slight wrinkle, the complexity that I mentioned at the end of verse 14. You've got to think about this. You've got to ponder it. This is interesting, at least I think. I'm going to approach it, though, through that 2 Corinthians 5 passage. For our sake, he made Christ sin so that we would not be sin in God's eyes. For our sake. Think about that phrase. Think about the phrase at the end of verse 14. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, what I said earlier is true. There is peace offered here. And on the front end, looking at it, we have to say, I am not at peace with God. I am... I am an enemy of his. I need to make peace with what he's provided, the cross, Christ's payment. That would make peace between us. Yes, I want to grab that. I want to trust. I want to believe. And then what happens is I pass from condemnation to justification. Legally, that all changes. Yes, absolutely. However, there's an order of things here that we need to think about. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or, peace among the people of his pleasure. Peace among the people that he delights in. Peace among his beloved. Which comes first? Does he make peace and then we become his beloved? Or does he send peace to be among those that are his beloved? For our sake, he sent Christ. This language at the end of verse 14, in that day, was another way of talking about the people of God or God's chosen people, the ones he loves. His beloved ones. He has acted to make peace among his beloved. What comes first is his love for you. And then, like an estranged father, like a father with an estranged child, he chases you down to make peace with you. Because of the great love with which he loved you. His love for you comes first. He knows in particular, he knows with focus who his beloved ones are. We we don't know. On the back end, we don't know. It comes to us like 
here. Let all who are weary and heavy laden come to me and I will give them rest. Take my yoke upon you and you will find that I am gentle and humble of heart. It comes out there as good news to all people. And if you are hearing this, I plead with you as one of the all people, hear it and believe and respond. On the front end, that's how it comes to us all. But on the back end, what we realize is, oh, and the reason that it came to me and the reason that I heard it and the reason that the phone rang and that one time when that preacher was talking there on that Sunday morning and I was hearing it, the reason that I was getting it is that God loved me and God dialed my number and God sent Christ to get me in the love of God for me, not in my own initiative or my own wisdom. What if you ponder this, what should produce even greater joy in you is that the Father from eternity past knew you and sought you and sent the Son for your sake. Marvelous. Marvelous. If I want to put a doctrinal head on this, it's the doctrine of election. In case that's new to you, that sounds perhaps like a theological category made up, for, made up by men. It's all over the word. The word, in fact, is all over the Bible, let alone the doctrine. God chose you and chased you down and sent the Son to get you to make peace among those who are the people of his pleasure. What a vast ocean of gracious love there is for you. That it would move the Father to while you were yet an enemy of his to come and make peace with you. Now, again, 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 on the front end, all that comes to us, what I mean by that is, is, as we look at it from the outside, all that we sense is I am under God's judgment. I am estranged. I have a sin problem that needs to be reconciled. And here is what he has provided. And so I plead with you, the offer goes to every single person who, who hears this and every single person who says, I trust it, every single one of those people God will save. But then if you look at it from the backside, what you realize is, and the reason that it perked up in my ears and that it attracted me and that the guilt piled in on me and the joyful release welled up in me, the reason for all of that was the work of God. As he says, as Jesus says in John 6, it's because the Father was drawing me to the Son. Bless the name of the Father who loved me with an everlasting love. This is how he is with his people. And you can trace it all the way back to the very beginning. You can read in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 7 off the top of my head. Deuteronomy 7, where Moses is talking about why God loved Israel. And it says he loved them because he loved them. That's the bottom. Why did he love? Because. He loves a people. Because. And sent the Son to make peace among that people. 
for you. And if you ponder that, what it says is that his love for you preceded reconciliation. His love for you has reached into eternity past. It is so wide and long and high and deep. It did not begin at the moment that you did something, that you repented. And it will not fade away the moment that you do something else and screw up. It precedes all of that. It starts in the wisdom of God in eternity past, a people upon whom he set his affection and acted to come save Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased, among the people of his pleasure, is a great statement of his love and of his pleasure and of his favor that has always been on you and remains on you going forward. You are a favored people. If you don't know yourself as a Christian right now, I invite you, come in to the favored people. Come in by trusting Christ today even. He is always calling people in. He says throughout the scriptures, Paul preaches this repeatedly, that he preaches the gospel because he knows God is always calling in people. So come. Come and find, come and experience the favor of God. And you who already do, rest in it and rejoice, 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 rejoice. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. The blessing of God reaches forever back, moved him to send the Son for your sake, to put on to you righteous legal standing, to welcome you back into his smile, back into the experience of his pleasure. That's where you stand right now. So stand in it and walk in it and experience it and enjoy it. This good blessing of God on you. Rejoice and bless God for he has sent a great Savior for our joy. He's made peace and welcomed you in. Ponder this good news. And God will grow in you hope and God will grow in you the experience of peace and God will grow in you the trust that says, if he has done this for me, he will never leave me. So why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in this God. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would produce two things in us, your people now. You would produce joy over what is seen and pondering over what is not yet clear. Lord, produce those two things, please, among us. Lord, I think there are people who are here or who will hear this who don't know you yet. Lord, in them produce faith 
and pondering over what is not yet clear. Do not allow any of us to to dismiss and to move on. To miss the offer of eternal life that is here. To miss the reality of your favor and, and your deep pleasure with us. Don't allow us to miss it, please. For that which is illumined, give faith and joy. And for that which is not yet clear, give pondering consideration and faithful thought. But this is my prayer. Pray you would build your church. You would honor your name. And that we, your people, would walk in joy. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.